Amen. Thank you, musicians. You always do a great job. We appreciate it so very much. Thank you for being here this morning. Hope everyone, as Steve has already said, had a great Thanksgiving. We did. Um, it's, always a, it's always a great day. Thanksgiving has always been one of my favorite holidays. I, I don't know whether it's because of all the food or all the football, but I think it's mostly because of family. And uh, we got to spend Thanksgiving with Brenda's dad this week, and, and that was a, a, a great honor to, to spend time. I love spending time with elderly people, uh, especially during this time of year, because it just kind of gives you visual evidence of how good God has been. I mean, what is Carl now, Brenda? 88? 88 years old, and he's still going strong. He can even out-eat me, I think. But uh, anyway, hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I shared with you last week from Philippians chapter 3, the first 11 verses. And I told you, I believe, last week that I was going to preach from these same 11 verses today because if you'll remember, if you were here last week, uh, I spent most of my time in the book of Ecclesiastes from the Old Testament and, and uh, how, how those verses from the words of Solomon uh, should encourage us to be people of joy. Now, I don't believe that there's any greater time of year to express our joy than the Thanksgiving Christmas season. Amen? So today I'm going to go back and, and redo again the first 11 verses. And uh, this is going to be a, a, a different kind of message than was last Sunday because Last Sunday, I felt that there was some great challenge in, in Paul's words, and particularly in Solomon's words. Today is, is a bit different, as you'll be able to gather here in just a moment. But Paul begins with this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless." But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its enduring quality. Thank you, Lord, that it just tells us the truth, and tells us, Lord, how to live in a way that's pleasing to you. So as your anointed word goes forth this morning, I pray that you would anoint my words as well, and anoint our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled this morning's message, Humble Pie. And by the way, before I go any further, you may or may not be aware that this is the Petersons' last Sunday with us as residents of Liberal. Man, I hate to lose you folks. And I know they have mixed feelings about leaving, but I wanted to tell you that so you can be sure and, and hug their neck before, they, before you leave this morning. What a, what a great couple of people. We're, we've just been blessed to have you with us, and we're going to miss you and miss you deeply. But Ron did assure me that they will be back from time to time. So that's always good to hear. Now, back to the message. Human achievement, human righteousness, they always seem to go together. They always seem to be in style because we live in a society that 
or maybe I should say we live in a society in which human achievement and, human and hard work are rewarded. There are awards, bonuses, all types of recognition, all types of advancement that are means by which a person can be rewarded in one area or another for having attained excellence in any given particular field. Whether it's business or athletics or the arts or academics, awards to commemorate outstanding achievement are a common part of the world in which we live. And there are many whose motivation for attaining such excellence and such awards uh, is the recognition that comes along with that. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. Uh, Most people that I know appreciate recognition of their accomplishments from time to time, right? We all, we all like to be given pats on the back for things that we've done well. But So I, I was thinking about this, and, and I wanted to just take an opportunity to remind you uh, of a list of fields in which awards are given for outstanding achievement in the world in which we live. Acting, Technical achievement, science, writing, design, architecture, military servants, service, engineering, entrepreneurship, music, food, academics, athletics, and even sales. Now, how many parents do I have here today? How many of you of parents have told your kids, if you study hard and get good grades, you'll have a chance at getting a scholarship to put you through college? We've all done it. Not many of our kids have, but we've all done it. (laughs) You know, I, I, I grew up, as you know, a fan of the New York Yankees. And when I was a kid, my dream was that someday I would have my uniform number retired and I would have a plaque placed in Monument Park in Yankee Stadium alongside Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle. I could go on. But you get the idea. So, as I said a moment ago, there's certainly nothing wrong with the desire to obtain rewards. But we have to remember that all of the awards that I've mentioned are earthly rewards. They are awards given by humans to other humans. And on occasion, when someone receives an award, we have this habit of standing to our feet and giving a standing ovation to also recognize their accomplishment. But here's the problem. The problem is when we transfer, uh, when we, when we transfer these horizontal rewards, that is the rewards that we give to one another, when we transfer those rewards and make them part of a vertical relationship that we have with God thinking that in attaining the horizontal rewards, that's going to find some favor in God's eyes and make us more attractive to him, we fall into error. Um, In other words, it's easy for us to think that because of excellence in attaining earthly rewards, God's going to tip his hat toward us. He's going to stand up in front of the throne maybe and give us his own standing ovation. Now, of course, many then would associate God's acknowledgement of our accomplishments as the means by which surely we would gain entrance into his heavenly family, right? Well, if that's you, you're a Pharisee. Because that's what the Pharisees of Jesus' day of whom Paul was a member, looked at in terms of finding favor with God and and entrance into the heavenly family of God. So that's where human achievement falls apart. Because Scripture speaks much louder than words, as is evidenced by the Apostle Paul's words from Romans chapter 3, verse number 10. There he says this, As it is written... None is righteous. No, not one. You know, those are words that I can assure you are not going to win friends and influence people. But nevertheless, they're true. 
You're never going to hear those words from salespeople or even academia, nor from anyone else who thrives on a rah-rah, feel-good treatment to motivate people. Of course, you can minimize those words and say something like, well, you know, the Apostle Paul, he's, he's kind of known as being an extremist so in his writings, so I don't know how much, how, much, uh, in, how much impact those words really have. But did you notice the first four words that I spoke from Romans 3.10? Paul said, as it is written. These are not just his words. It's Paul's way of telling us that he's quoting from a couple of different psalms. Psalms 14, 1 through 4, and Psalm 53, 1 through 4. They're very similar, but here's what they say. Uh, Begin with Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. And then you skip over to Psalm 53, and as I said, very similar words with just a couple of different words that the psalmist uses. Again, he says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing an abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all fallen away. Together they've become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. So those words from the psalmist are hard to take for people who strive to be high achievers, who've been driven to succeed in order to gain either the approval of their fellow man or approval from God. It's especially hard for people who have been pumped full of motivational techniques about moving up the ladder of success. But nevertheless, those words ring in our ears. There is none righteous, not one. Now, again, don't get me wrong this morning. There's nothing wrong with doing good. Matter of fact, we need more of it. But the mistake comes in believing that our earthly good is going to result in eternal righteousness. You see, all of our earthly good comes across to God as being corrupt unless it's done For him. He has to be our motivation. Did you know that if you are an employee, you bring glory to God to your employer by doing a good job? Everything that we do is designed as a means of worshiping God. And so when we do things uh, not for God but do things for ourselves, God looks upon those things as being meaningless. Um, all of our good, I said, comes across as corrupt to God. Now, if you think that's too strong a word, go to Isaiah 64, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah says, There all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. This is the NIV, by the way. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty descriptive language. Um, We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. And forgive me if this shocks you, but the original Hebrew translates that as being a technical term describing the ritual impurity of the menstrual cloth. I don't need to get any more specific than that. God looks at our righteousness as being filthy rags. And the great temptation is for those who are high achievers to doubt that. Now, many of us, whether we are high, medium, or low achievers, we have this subconscious notion that we will be rewarded in heaven just like we're rewarded for our achievements here on earth. And the reason we think that way is because there is pride in our hearts. It's against human nature to bend the knee and to bow to someone. It's against our nature to want to ask for help. If you don't believe that, just 
Ask your wife when she tells you, when she asks you, do you know where you're going? Would you just stop and ask for directions? Hello? Um, <laughs> it's against our nature to want to ask for help. And the reason for that is because when we do, it insults the pride in our hearts. So let me illustrate to you from an incident in my life back when I was a farmer a long time ago. I was uh, driving my tractor, pulling a, an implement that was hooked to an anhydrous tank. You've seen those anhydrous tanks. The implement injected the anhydrous ammonia into the ground, and it fertilized the ground and made the crops better. But anyway, I was putting on anhydrous ammonia on a field, and uh, the implement that I was pulling was probably 30 foot wide, and the tank it was pulling was probably another 20 feet if you go from the hitch to the back of the tank. And then my tractor was probably 25 feet long. And I tell you that because when it came time to turn around in the field... I had to make sure that I had plenty of room to make the turn. Hopefully you can get that image in your mind. Now it happened that I was working in one of our fields in which we had a tailwater pit. Now for those of you who may not know what a tailwater pit is, it's a pit at the end of your field that's designed to catch the runoff irrigation water. And it just happened that this particular tailwater pit at this particular time of year, was completely full of water. So as I approached the tailwater pit on my tractor, pulling this implement with the anhydrous ammonia tank attached, I knew that I was going to need plenty of room in which to turn, but I also would challenge myself to get as close as possible to the tailwater pit and still be able to make the turn. Well, long story much shorter... I didn't allow myself sufficient room to turn. And the tractor climbed up the edge of the bank of that tailwater pit, turned around, and the implement, of course, I'd raised up out of the ground. And then the tank began to climb up the embankment of the pit. But there's liquid inside that tank. And it happened to be a full tank. And that, that tank started, the liquid started jostling back and forth in the tank as it was making the turn. And the first thing I knew, I looked back and the, tail, the, the tank was disappearing under the level of the water, had completely broken the hitch, and was sinking to the bottom of the tailwater pit. Now I tell you that because imagine trying to explain that to your dad and trying to explain it to Collingwood Grain to whom the tank belonged. Um, you can't even begin to imagine how damaging it is to one's pride to have to admit, I'm an idiot. <laughs> that tailwater pit contained that tank until the water went down far enough that Collingwood could come and pull their tank out. Humbling, to say the least. Now, I've known a lot of people who believe that if working 10 hours per day is good, then working 14 hours a day must be better. And often those with that kind of mindset will grow to resent their work because they can never get enough done to satisfy their own expectations. They've not yet understood a concept that Jesus gave to us in Matthew chapter number 11, verses 28 through 30. There he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. For those who develop the idea that if they just work enough, and who knows how much that is, that their efforts are eventually going to get God's attention, and he's going to say to them, wow, you guys are really amazing. You need to come up here where I am. I need folks like you. I can't even begin to tell you how wrong that kind of thinking is. The telltale sign, and this is how it all pertains to the words of the Apostle Paul here in Philippians chapter number 3. Whether it's needing humbling because you have pride in your heart, as I did, 
or whether it's thinking that you can work harder and therefore gain more of God's favor, whether, whatever it is that you're thinking, the telltale sign of a life as, those things, as, as a life that I've just described to you is an absence of joy. You might, that might seem strange, but let me try to put that together for you. Striving, when striving intensifies and our drive continues, usually our smile goes on vacation and our laughter grows more and more rare. And so Paul begins the middle part of this entire letter to the Philippian church with this admonition. Enjoy or rejoice in the Lord. Not in your accomplishments. Rejoice in what the Lord has done. And then Paul gives us evidence of why that is so true. I I really believe this to the core of my being. Joy should be a part of every Christian's DNA. It should be, even in the worst of times. Joy comes as a result of having confidence in God. Now think about that. Not because God has done something to really get you attention or given you something that makes you really happy. That's not joy. Joy comes from being confident in God and in the fact that he is working in our lives in spite of who we are and in spite of what we've done with human effort. Paul tells these believers in Philippi, to rejoice as they lean upon God. And he's telling them this as a safeguard from those in their midst who are doing evil things. And he goes on to describe those evil things, and he uses some very symbolic language in describing them. Paul knows that there are evildoers that have invaded the church in Philippi, and the evildoers he calls legalists. In other words, you have to be circumcised. Well, here we are in a Gentile church in Philippi. We have people who have professed belief in Jesus as their Savior. We're going to have a circumcision service next week. How many of you want to come? But that's what they were coming into the church and telling them. You can't be part of God's family unless you're circumcised. So he's identifying the evildoers as the ones who practice legalism. And not just circumcision. They had to observe all of the Jewish rituals. They had to eat what the Jews eat and not eat what the Jews ate, uh, didn't eat. And they had to conduct themselves in a manner worthy, not of God, but of the Jewish laws. In other words, they had to conform to all of those rules that had been laid down before them in order to find God's favor. And Paul is concerned that in the midst of this invasion of legalism, that these believers need to safeguard themselves so that they don't lose their joy. (laughs) You know, now think about that. You've come from pagan thinking. Jesus has saved you. You're a new creation in Christ. And then you have someone come in and say, oh, by the way, by the way, since you now consider yourself to be a believer, you have to do this and this and this and this and this. Would that cause you to lose your joy? Sure would me. And Paul wanted them to safeguard against that. Paul himself was constantly being dogged by these same legalists who were snipping at his heels to to conform to what they'd been taught that a religious person ought to look like. In fact, Paul even refers to them in, in this passage in Philippians as being dogs. Now let me explain that a little bit. In those days, dogs weren't house pets like we have today. Dogs were pesky, dangerous animals that traveled in packs that would seek something or someone whom they could gang up on and attack and mutilate them. And so Paul says, beware of these dogs. 
Beware of these evildoers. And just in case you hadn't noticed, Paul gets very specific here. He, Paul was never one to tell people what they wanted to hear. But he's telling the church in, in Philippi, listen, you have people that look like sheep in terms of being godly. Beware of them because they are wolves in sheep's clothing. And they are, their goal is, may not be to sap your joy, but that will be the end result, that you will lose your confidence in what God has done in order to conform to what they want you to do. Tells the Philippians to beware. Because the, the overriding message that these evildoers are bringing is that men are saved by their works and not by faith. God help us. You see, friends, works are important, but only after Jesus has saved us with the free gift of salvation. They do not lead to salvation. They are a result of salvation. And there's not one of those evildoers on this earth even to this day who can tell us how many works it would take to find favor in God. It'll always be more and more and more. I mean, their laws were so ridiculous that on the Sabbath day, if you took more than a certain number of steps, you were to be condemned. And so when it came down to the fact that they had to walk to get to the temple to worship, they had to make sure that they lived close enough to the temple that they didn't take more than that number of steps. So you know what they would do? They would purchase a piece of land that would just hold a mat to sleep on. Only big enough to hold a mat to sleep on within that defined number of steps to the temple. We laugh at that, but that's how, that's how demanding they were. You know, when I die... I don't know about any of the rest of you, but I, I don't want to have to rely on my work, good works having outweighed my bad deeds to get me into heaven. I, I don't want to step, walk into those gates and say, Whew, glad that's over. That's not the way I want it to happen. If that were to be the case, when you and I finally got to heaven, we'd be greeted by the applause of people who were already there because we would have joined them. They were the elite. They were the ones who did all of those things to, in God's favor. But when it's grace, when it's grace, friends, it completely changes the equation. God, through grace, looks at our works and says, hey, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you grew up on. Grace covers your sin. And when grace covers your sin, you're good enough in my sight because of Jesus. Aren't you thankful for grace this morning? Evildoers don't have grace in their message. They're people who are called false circumcision people. Paul describes them as being mutilators of the flesh. And he says in verse number 3, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence whatsoever in the flesh. Now, if you're a type A personality, if you're a salesperson of the year, or any of those other award winners that I mentioned, hear me on this. There's no confidence placed in the flesh when it comes to a vertical relationship with God. My confidence is in God. My confidence is in the saving work of Jesus. Paul then goes into this dialogue in which he gives the qualifications that he could have confidence in if he were relying on fleshly credentials. Now you may think that Paul is arrogant here, that he's bragging on himself. He's not bragging. I remember my granddad telling me of a baseball pitcher that was around long before I came on the scene that, that he followed. His name was Dizzy Dean. Any of you remember Dizzy Dean? Dizzy Dean once said it. It's not, well, I'll say it the way Dizzy said it. It ain't bragging if you can do it. What Paul's telling us here is not bragging because he could do it. 
Now, these credentials, no one else in that century could boast of. He'd been circumcised according to Jewish law. He was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He was educated under the teaching of Gamaliel, one of the finest Jewish teachers of the law. He'd been a Pharisee who exhibited strict adherence to the law of Moses. He was a zealous Jew who had viciously persecuted those who believed and promoted the gospel of Jesus. And as for righteousness according to the law, Paul, or Saul as he was then known, was without fault. <clears throat> now if we're not Jewish or we weren't alive in the first century, we can't, really can't appreciate a list such as this one that Paul's just given us. You see, Paul was a part of the only nation on earth which had a covenant relationship with God. I looked in a Barclays commentary and, and saw these words that I want to share with you from William Barclay. He says, if ever there was a Jew who was steeped in Judaism, that Jew was Paul. Let us look again at the claims he had to be the Jew par excellence. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That is to say, he bore in the body the badge and the mark that he was one of God's chosen people. He was of the race of Israel. That is to say, he was a member of the nation who stood in covenant relationship with God, a relationship in which no other people stood. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. What is the point of that claim? The tribe of Benjamin had a unique place in the history of Israel. It was from Benjamin that the first king of Israel had come, for Saul was a Benjamite. And when Israel went into battle, it was the tribe of Benjamin which held the post of honor. Their battle cry would always be, after thee, O Benjamin. In lineage, Paul was not only an Israelite, he was of the aristocracy of Israel. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That is to say, Paul was not one of these Jews of the dispersion who in a foreign land had forgotten their own tongue. He was a Jew who still remembered and knew the language of his fathers. He was a Pharisee. That is to say, he was not only a devout Jew, he was more. He was one of those who considered themselves to be the separated ones who had forsworn all normal activities in order to dedicate life to keeping the law. And he had kept the law with such meticulous care that in the keeping of it, he was blameless. Man. Add to that the fact that all of those qualifications... Everyone believed in that century would one day lead Paul to be the chief priest of the Sanhedrin. He was destined for the top chair. He was, he was numero uno among his people. That's his qualifications. The perfect model of Judaism until he came to a place on the road to Damascus. As he was going down that road to Damascus, everything changed. Blinded by a light from heaven, Saul, as he was then known, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, we know that to be the voice of Jesus. And for Saul, I'm guessing that was probably a deafening voice because, after all, he was on that road to Damascus to arrest more people for believing in the insane belief that Jesus, had, who had been crucified, had risen from the dead. Paul had given consent to Christians being murdered for their faith in Jesus. And now he encounters this very same Jesus whom he believed to the core of his being was dead and no longer existed. In that moment of time, all of Paul's or Saul's righteousness revealed its bankruptcy. You know, in today's terminology, Saul was an Oscar winner, a Grammy winner, an Emmy winner, a Most Valuable Player, a Heisman Trophy winner, Pulitzer Prize winner, a gold medalist listed in everyone's who's who, who's who list, Summa cum laude graduate, religious zealot of the decade winner. I'm sure if they'd have had him, Paul would have scored 100% on the Jew Jewish SAT. But in that moment, they meant nothing. Because Paul came face to face with the risen Jesus. 
Matter of fact, he describes them as becoming, as Isaiah had termed them, filthy rags. All of the support of being a high achiever went out from under him. He says in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And not only that, but he became aware that everything is a loss compared to the value of knowing Jesus. Think about this, friends. Paul gave up all of that stuff. He gave up the destiny that everyone thought he was going to have, that, that chief seat of the Sanhedrin. He gave it all up for the sake of knowing Jesus. Matter of fact, he says it this way, depending on the translation you have, I count all of those things as rubbish. Rubbish. Another place he says, he uses the actual Hebrew word, which was more explicit. He said, I count them all but dung. Trash, excrement, all of those things. It was a waste. Because now I know the one that I can have real confidence in. My confidence in those things has, has tarnished. They no longer mean anything. Now, an interesting interpretation of this is that Paul threw all of those credentials to those dogs. But he had caught a glimpse of perfect righteousness and what perfect righteousness looked like in the person of Jesus. It's like Jesus had graded all of Paul's papers that he'd completed and found Paul to be failing. But when Paul turned his eyes upon Jesus, the things of earth grew strangely dim in light of his glory and his grace. We sang that song earlier this morning, The Solid Rock. Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That's, well, that's what our awards, that's what our achievements are. They're sinking sand when we stand on them as a means of reaching heaven. And then we come to verse 10. And here Paul gives us his personal philosophy, and this is something that's so very difficult for type A high achievers, is to talk about someone else's power because they much prefer talking about their own power and their own qualifications. Hard work, good training, good schooling, a focus on climbing up the corporate ladder. They're oblivious to anyone and anything else that may distract from their focus. That's a philosophy that here in verse number 10, Paul debunks as being false. You've heard people say, well, I have credentials. Or my background would qualify me for this or that. There's a key word in both of those phrases that I just used. It's the word my. My credentials. My qualifications. My background. <laughs> Any of you ever attended a motivational seminar? You go there and you listen to highly motivated, success-driven people. And I've yet to go to one of those seminars and heard any of them talking about the importance of sharing and suffering. It's just not a part of it. That, as a matter of fact, sharing in someone else's suffering goes directly against what they're trying to teach. But on that Damascus Road, Paul's focus, his perspective changed 180 degrees. It didn't happen because he changed religions. It didn't happen because he changed denominations. It happened because he changed a relationship. And he now had a relationship with Jesus in whom supreme confidence was brought to his life. Not of his own doing, but of all that Christ had done. It's kind of like having I'm losing my voice. It's kind of like having the rug pulled out from under you. It's kind of like having, falling flat on your face without the benefit of having the props of your achievements to hold on to. You know, we can identify with our, then with our Savior Jesus 
who at the young age of 33, who had been talking for three and a half years about his coming kingdom and whom his followers believed was going to overthrow the Roman rule and sit on the throne and rule from that throne, Jesus at the age of 33 found himself hanging from a cross as a common criminal. He gave all of that up for the sake of his eternal purpose in coming to die for you and me. You talk about humbling yourself. You talk about humble pie. That's as humble as it gets. And see, here's here's the application. The entire process of losing what we've done for the sake of what Jesus has done is solely for the purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ, making us more like he is. You know, the day's going to come, and maybe even sooner than I think, when in my dying moment I'm going to realize nothing in my hand I bring but to the cross of Christ I cling. It's all about what happened there at the cross. And whether you believe in that saving work of Calvary, whether or not you believe that Jesus walked out of that tomb alive three days later, whether or not you believe that he's in heaven and he's preparing a place for you, and when he comes again, he's going to receive you unto himself, that where, we, where he is, we may be also. That's what it's all about. You know, when, when, I, get, when I die, heaven's going to open up. And only by the grace of Jesus am I going to be welcomed home. Only by the grace of Jesus. It's not going to happen as a result of the fact that I did a lot of good works in his name. It'll happen because I received his gift, his free gift of grace. And each of us needs to come in contact with that once crucified, now glorified person of Jesus Christ and count everything else in light of his glory as rubbish, waste. There might be a few high achievers here this morning. And trust me when I tell you, I've used to be of that same persuasion, thinking that if I just did more than everybody else would would accept me and love me. And I transferred that relationship from how others accepted me and loved me to my relationship with God. Surely that must mean that God now loves me and accepts me because I'm doing more and more and more and more. So I can, I can identify with the philosophy of works. I can identify with thinking that somehow those things that I did That was nothing more than church busyness. I'm not saying church business. I'm saying church busyness should qualify me to enter into those pearly gates. I can understand that. Thank you, Jerry. Appreciate that. I can understand that. But hear me on this, friends. That's a failed philosophy. It will not work. So let me close with just two very simple statements, plain truths that you can take from what Paul is sharing with us in these 11 verses. The first one is this. Trusting in your own achievements may bring you glory now, but it'll leave you bankrupt later. Spiritually bankrupt. The hardest part is to get a type A personality, a high achiever, to hear this kind of message. After all, they think to themselves, you know what, I've done pretty well up to now, so why change things? The answer, very simple. A good eulogy has never gotten anyone into heaven. All of those accomplishments that people talk about when You're at your memorial service. That's not going to determine whether you get to heaven or not. Whether or not you get to heaven is going to be determined by what you did with Jesus while you were here. And that brings me to the second statement. Trusting in his accomplishment. Not only gives him glory now, but it results in eternal righteousness. Can I tell you something about eternal righteousness? 
It lasts forever. <laughs> You're going to be in the presence of Jesus. We're going to be like him. Joint heirs with him. Heirs of God. All that God has for his son Jesus is going to be for us. Because we've trusted in what Christ has done and not in what we've done. Worship team, would you come, please? That statement, trusting in what Christ has done, not what we've done. You can't beat a deal like that. Because Christ has done everything necessary for us to gain heaven. So this morning, I think, I think we need to be real authentic. Don't need to have any pretense about our relationship with Jesus because it all comes down to this question. Is Jesus really your Lord? Is he on the throne of your life? You've heard me say it before, I'll say it again. There's a lot of people like the idea of having Jesus forgive their sins. Jesus, their Savior, he saved them. But there's not near as long a line of people who are willing to make Jesus Lord. That means giving control, the throne of your life to him, allowing him to call the shots. And you know why I can let Jesus call the shots in my life? Because I have confidence in him. I have confidence in what he's done. I don't have to worry about my performance, whether or not it measured up. My confidence is in Jesus, the solid rock on which I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Stand to your feet. We're going to sing this song. Make it your prayer this morning as we close. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. You know, as we were just singing that, it occurred to me for the first time, Saul, before he became Paul, could have wrote those words. He turned his eyes to Jesus on that road to Damascus. And all of a sudden, everything else faded into oblivion. That's what we need to do. Quit worrying about whether you're good enough. Think, quit worrying about whether you are working hard enough. Put your confidence in the saving work of Jesus. That's all we need to do. And that's hard for us to do because we have this thing in our heart called pride that says, I got to do more. I got to do more. Well, do more after you're saved. Do more for Jesus after you're saved. Let your, let your, let your reward be based on what you've done. For Jesus, after he's gloriously saved you and after you put your confidence in him, let those works testify to the fact that you belong to him. Let's sing it one more time. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light.
You're here this morning. You're a rule keeper. You've been doing all that you can trying to find God's favor, increased favor in your life. Well, there's nothing wrong with doing good stuff. But if you think that good stuff is going to merit God's approval, hear what Paul says here. He did a lot of good stuff. But it all faded into oblivion when he came face to face with Jesus. If you're here this morning and you say, I've been, I've been wearing myself out trying to do more and more. Make it easy on yourself. Accept the grace that Jesus offers to you this morning. Just bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, if there's anyone here that has bought into the world system, they, they believed, Lord, that that ladder of success will eventually get them to heaven because of all the good things that they've done. I pray this morning, Lord, that they would turn their eyes upon you and realize that there's nothing in their hand that they can bring except to the cross of Christ they cling. Lord Jesus, forgive us this morning. Forgive us for buying into legalism. Free us from that, Lord. You freed us from sin. Now free us from the bondage of legalism. And just baptize us over again with your grace that's so abundant and so free and so undeserved. And yet you give it to us in spite of who we are. Lord, set people free this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Sing it again as you close. Turn your eyes upon